I concluded my previous production by answering the question, if the law is not fundamental to Christendom, then what is? The answer, as I said, is the four pillars of historic Christianity. So let me begin this by defining historic Christianity. Simply put, I mean the orthodox with a lowercase o, Christian faith, the Trinitarian faith as defined by the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which excludes those who reject the Nicene-Constantinopolitan formulations, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Oneness Pentecostals, and so forth. So now to the four pillars of historic Christianity. In my second installment of this series, Christendom and the Great Commission, looking at Peter's sermon recorded in the second chapter of Acts, I said evangelism has to include instruction in the law and the prophets, especially in a culture that is increasingly, if not now, completely biblically illiterate. It has to include honest instruction about the cost entailed in discipleship. It has to include instruction on what is expected of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And what is expected is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which reads, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. So the four pillars of historic Christianity are, one, the apostolic teaching, two, the fellowship, three, the Eucharist, or communion, and four, prayer. The teaching of the apostles. The teaching of the Apostles, as summarized in the Apostles' Creed, has formed the outline of systematic treatments of the Christian faith for Christians of all denominations. It formed the outline for the Catechism of the Catholic Church, as well as for John Calvin's Institutes for the Christian Religion. But for present purposes, I want to employ the canonical symbol of the faith, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now this creed summarizes what we find taught in the New Testament and reflected in Christian theological reflection for centuries. But for purposes of my present discussion, Christendom and its relation to traditional Christianity, I want to focus on three aspects of the apostolic teaching, repentance, baptism, and evangelical calling. Repentance. To quote the first in Martin Luther's 95 Theses, 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Matthew 4.17 says from that time, that is, after his temptation in the wilderness and the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, metanoiete, is the present active imperative of metaneo, a word which means to undergo a change in frame of mind and feeling, to make a change of principle and practice, or to reform. Employing the present active imperative, the sense is to remain in a continuing state of repenting, as if Jesus, translated into English, were to have said, Keep repenting and believing, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, as St. Paul will later write in his letter to the Christians in Rome, is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 14, verse 17. A life of repentance. Baptism. Baptism is the foundation of traditional Christianity. It redefines man's place in the cosmos and signifies a renewal of fallen humanity as redeemed by Christ, who, in the Incarnation, assumed human nature. Baptism unites us to Christ, who is both God and man. Anyone united to Christ is, therefore, a new creation, partaking of both his divine and human natures. Baptism is into the death and then the resurrection of Christ. But we're not simply talking about sprinkling water or immersion. Tossing water on someone or tossing someone in water isn't baptism. We are baptized into Christ. Baptism involves five elements, preparation, illumination, immersion, the participation of the whole church, and regular participation in the Eucharist. There must be repentance in terms of preparation, a change of heart, transformation, a reorientation toward God and his kingdom. Repentance and transformation involve a conception of sin. There must be catechesis, instruction in the faith, and it must be understood what it means to be a Christian. Illumination. There must be a new understanding of reality, a new way of seeing. Baptism, when made efficacious by the Holy Spirit, changes our perception not just of the cosmos, but of the people around us, resulting in a commitment to live a new life. This new understanding of reality will influence all our endeavors. Immersion. The rite of baptism is completed by the application of water. Now some, because the Greek word baptize means immersion, practice full body immersion. Others, because the immersion is into Christ, believe that sprinkling is sufficient. In both cases, the baptism is performed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the corporate participation of the whole church, which I'll say more about in a moment, along with regular participation in communion. Third, evangelical calling in the world. The third aspect of the apostolic teaching I want to talk about is the church's evangelical calling in the world, the calling of the community of saints to evangelize the world, to fulfill the Great Commission. This evangelical calling challenges, or should challenge, the spirit of the age, whatever that spirit may be. In our age, for example, the simple act of evangelizing is an assault on the current spirit of secularization and privatization of faith. Evangelism calls for the spiritual transformation of the world. 
There are passages in the Gospels in which Jesus makes it very clear that his disciples are to engage the world in a transformative way. Disciples are described as leaven, as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a lamp and a lampstand. Evangelicals, particularly of a dispensational view, believe that since the whole world, that is, each individual human, is not going to be Christian, it is illegitimate to claim that the church is called to transform the world spiritually. Evangelicals of non-dispensational view, adhering to the two kingdoms view, aren't much different. There is the worldly or left-hand kingdom, and there is the heavenly or right-hand kingdom. So, by and large, Evangelicals deny the possibility or even the desirability of a transformed world because every individual in the world will not be saved. More historically aware Christians understand that although every Roman citizen did not become a Christian, Christianity still transformed the Roman, excuse me, the Roman world. The Roman Empire of 325 AD simply was not the Roman Empire of 33 AD. Transformation is possible, has happened, and is not objectionable simply because everyone in such a transformed world is not Christian. The evangelical calling does not cease even in Christendom. Christianity had been the religion of the Roman Empire for around a century when Augustine was converted under the preaching of Ambrose. Now looking at the issue from a different perspective, the United States have become more secular since the founding but not all of us are secularists. And secularism has certainly had a transformational effect upon Christians. Let me read a relevant passage from D.A. Carson's book, Christ and Culture Revisited. This is from page 115. In popular parlance, secularism has to do with the squeezing of the religious to the periphery of life. More precisely, secularization is the process that progressively removes religion from the public arena and reduces it to the private realm. Secularism is the stance that endorses and promotes such a process. Religion may be ever so important to the individual, and few secular persons will object. But if religion makes any claims regarding policy in the public arena, it is viewed as a threat and intolerant as well. In reality, the social pressures of secularization are far more unrelenting than this simple distinction between private religion and public religion suggests. To preserve Christian faith, even in one's private life, is viewed by many as a mark of weakness. If God is any place at all, it is not outside human consciousness. Religion in general, and Christianity in particular, have some instrumental value, but not much. Religion may have some mythological value as that which represents the best and noblest in the human spirit, but to reify the myth is to depreciate humanism. Nowhere is this pressure more powerful than in our universities. Christian faith must not only be private in the sense that it is not permitted to have a voice in direction, priorities, literary theory, science, or anything else, but it must also be so private that it becomes invisible. Christians become nervous about talking of their faith and thus become unpracticed in witness. Unquote. The fellowship. The second pillar of traditional Christianity is the fellowship. Luke tells us that the, the, the disciples continued in fellowship. The Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed refers to the communion of the saints. As I mentioned, talking about baptism, the rite of baptism requires the corporate participation of the whole church, the fellowship. 
Traditional Christianity supports individuality, but not individualism. The church is the fellowship, the community of saints, or those called to be saints, a family. And because the church is a community, or family, baptism is not a private act, and generally is performed as part of a regular worship service. Historically, present at baptism are a presiding officer or the official baptizer as a representative of the church, as well as the church, the assembly of the faithful. Baptism is not truly performed by the minister, it is performed by the church as represented by the minister. And it is public because as a profession of faith in Christ must be public, so must the initiatory rite be. Being a community of saints means that Christians are sojourners, an insight which should lead to a certain detachment from the world. But the community of saints is a community sent into the world, which means that this detachment does not entail being disengaged from the world. Rather, the people of God are involved in a detached engagement with the world. As a community, the church developed a corporate life which included, one, a hierarchy, that is the authority of elders or bishops, terms used synonymously in the New Testament, two, doctrinal and moral accountability, not the doctrinal and moral free-for-all we see so much of today, third, liturgical worship inherited from Judaism. Living in communion and union with God and with each other provided this community of saints an experience on earth of the kingdom of heaven or paradise. This is a feature which has been weakened in the last many decades or longer. I won't claim to know. At any rate, I think it's safe to claim that many, even most, churches are not truly communities, not bodies, but temporary collections of individuals, all practicing a Jesus and me form of Christianity with no authoritative hierarchy to speak of, to say the least about it, little to no doctrinal and moral accountability, because only God can judge me, the life of the fellowship, the community of saints, is to exhibit love. Christ called his disciples to love one another with a divine love, agape, also known as unconditional love. This divine love has implications for Christian anthropology because man is created in the image of God. We are called, in the first of the two great commandments, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the second of the two greatest commandments, to love our neighbors as ourselves. This flows from the first because in loving our neighbor, we are loving the image of God. It's common to hear some of my fellow Christians agree with criticisms from non-Christians that Christians are not known for their unconditional love. But most of what we think we know about Christians, especially when it comes to matters of culture and politics, comes to us from the cultural elites, particularly in the news and entertainment industries. This is to say, what people think they know about Christians' unconditional love is mediated to them by people and institutions hostile to Christianity because the life to which the church calls the world is antithetical to the life to which the elites call the world. Consider how easy it is to be accused of having no compassion, how easy it is to be accused of being a racist or a fascist or a member of the dreaded alt-right. This is about how easy it is to be accused, as a Christian, of not loving as Jesus loved. It is as easy for Christians to be accused of hate as it is for any random white person to be accused of racism. Here are a few examples. 1. Agape love means to many accepting same-sex marriage. Believing homosexual relations to be sinful evinces a lack of unconditional love for one's neighbor. 
So Christians who oppose same oppose rather same sex marriage are hateful, not loving. Two, agape loves means pretending that the U.S. southern border and only our southern border does not exist. To insist that a nation has a right to insist on its borders with other nations is hateful. It's oppressive. Some of the people crossing the border are fleeing the most horrible of conditions. They want a better life. Depriving them of this is hateful. After all, Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Overlooking the misapplication of this passage, I'll just observe that many of these are the same people who will scream theocracy and separation of church and state if a Christian even breathes a hint of it that policy should be informed by biblical principles. But as far as they're concerned, believing that borders matter evinces a lack of love. 3. Extending the previous point, agape loves means not deporting illegal immigrants and protecting these poor souls from the federal government. Interestingly, agape love also means letting Kate Steinle's murderer get off with a wrist slap, among other similar things. 4. According to Jimmy Kimmel, agape love means Christians need to support someone's version of common-sense gun legislation, ignoring Americans' Second Amendment rights. Strangely, however, agape love does not permit Christians to vote their pro-life consciences. Not that it matters, the pro-life vote is unconstitutional. In short, agape love requires ignoring the Constitution on some occasions and insisting upon it on other occasions. The spiritually mature will know when to do which, of course. 5. Agape love means believing it is perfectly acceptable for the nations of Europe to be, well, let's just say it, invaded by Muslim and only Muslim refugees. Christians need not apply and will, on the other hand, be deported to the Muslim-dominated countries they are fleeing. Those who lecture us on our failure to extend agape love seem to believe that it is actually of limited application, and they will set those limits for us, of course. So, they want us to be obedient to Christ and exercise agape love, and they want us to be disobedient to Christ by letting them set the parameters for the extension of this love. For this reason, reports of the lack of Christian love should be received with a grain of salt, all you have to do is not love what the elites love or love what the elites hate. Still, be all that as it may, we are indeed called to divine love, the sort of love to which, despite failures, we must aspire. We must ensure, however, that the love we demonstrate is the sort of love that the scripture actually requires and teaches. The Eucharist. The third pillar of traditional Christianity is the Eucharist regular participation in communion. This is normative. Traditional Christianity, even among Protestants, particularly Presbyterians, does not know a lackadaisical attitude toward communion. This is because traditional Christianity believes that in the communion we receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike most evangelicals for whom the elements are no more than they appear and do nothing of any spiritual value, being empty symbols only, because we have been united to Christ in baptism, we should commune regularly because we are fed spiritually by him in the communion. Now let me pause here and deal with the issue of the Protestant understanding of communion, more specifically the Calvinistic view, which is the view that I hold. Roman Catholics believe that in the Mass the priest performs a sacrifice as well as a miracle, during which time the elements truly become the flesh and blood of Christ.
the Orthodox, while not holding to transubstantiation, nevertheless believe that the elements undergo a change such that in the communion we do literally eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we hold to no such view, Calvinists are thought to hold to the majority report among Protestants, which is apparently that the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine and the communion itself is purely symbolic and nothing of Christ is communicated to us. This simply isn't true. We do believe that Christ is communicated to us. We just do not believe that the elements undergo or even need to undergo any change in order for Christ to be communicated to us. In the communion, Christ is communicated to us in the elements by the mediation of the Holy Spirit, who is able to unite things and people separated by space and time. That is, our feasting upon Christ is not by the elements undergoing any change, but by the Holy Spirit making the elements effectual as the body and blood of Christ, so that we do truly feed upon him. Now, bearing all of that in mind, the fact is, even if we could be persuaded that the elements undergo a change, we would still be at odds with Roman, certainly, and the Eastern Orthodox, probably, because we see the Holy Spirit making communion effectual unto our spiritual nourishment. That is to say, if any miracle or other type of work needs done in transforming bread and wine into flesh and blood, the Holy Spirit does that and does not require a miracle-working priest. And one more thing, we, Protestants, would observe that the Holy Spirit's power to nourish us in Holy Communion does not require us to have any particular view of it. If the Holy Spirit is to nourish us with the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, he can and will do so, even if we deny that the elements undergo any change. I may not believe the elements undergo any change. That has no bearing upon whether I truly feed upon Christ. Without intending to minimize the importance of the subject, I may deny that green vegetables have any nutritional value at all and eat them only because my parents tell me to do. And I will get those nutrients despite my false beliefs about green vegetables. The Prayers The fourth pillar of Christianity is prayer. In most translations, Acts chapter 2 verse 42 records that the disciples devoted themselves to prayer. In fact, however, the Greek text employing the definite article tice says the disciples devoted themselves to the prayers, tice prosuchais. Interestingly, French translations such as La Bible de Smyrna and Nouvelle Edition de Genève, Louis II, keep the plural. Among Spanish translations, only one of those I'm familiar with translates it in the plural. The Reina Valera Antigua refers to las oraciones rather than, most typically, la oración, as, for example, la Biblia de las Américas. Translating tais prosuchais as simply prayer runs the risk of losing something, and that something is the fact that the prayers were corporate and, for that reason, very likely liturgical. In other words, set prayers, which evangelicals do not care for, and neither do a lot of Presbyterians, frankly. Moving on. Also, it is likely that the prayers were offered at the temple. We read in Acts chapter 3 verse 1 that Peter and John were on their way to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour, as Luke says, for prayer. Now, this is important not because I think prayer should be offered in a temple, but because the prayers were corporate, offered up to God as a body, reciting them as the Psalms also were recited corporately, 
one might even say by rote. We get an indication of the acceptability of set prayers and their recitation by Jesus himself responding to his disciples' request that he teach them to pray as John also had taught his own disciples by teaching them the Our Father, or Lord's Prayer. There are those who would argue that the Lord's Prayer is not strictly speaking a prayer, but rather the outline of a prayer. I would argue it is a prayer, but a prayer which can also provide an outline which all our other prayers should take, or may take. I won't belabor the point, but I will point out that teaching his disciples specific set prayers for recitation would have been consistent with contemporary rabbinical practice. Again, the prayers in the temple were liturgical. They were set and they were recited. It would not have been unusual for Jesus to have taught his own disciples such prayers. Now, this doesn't mean the only prayers we should offer are corporate. It does mean that, as a pillar of traditional Christianity, such prayers should be an important part of corporate worship. For thousands of years, Christians, like Jews, observed daily morning and evening prayer, and for centuries after the Reformation, this practice continued, even among Protestants. As my Roman Catholic friends and relations ponder the current situation, both in the U.S. and around the world, there's one consistent theme I hear them all mention, and I'm gratified to hear them do so. Praying the Rosary. Now, although we would not agree on that particular form of prayer, the essential agreement would be that before any and all activism against the modern decay, there must be devotion to prayer, not ad hoc catch-as-catch-can prayer, but persistent, regular prayers, including corporate liturgical prayer. I'll come back to this issue of devotion to prayer in my next video. So these then are the four pillars of historic Christianity. One, the apostolic teaching. Two, the fellowship. Three, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, communion. And four, the corporate prayers. These are significant because they indicate the nature of the kingdom of heaven as it is manifested in the world until the return of Christ. You'll note that I didn't mention biblical principles or the institution of the Mosaic law. The significance of these pillars of historic Christianity is they point not to ethical and moral standards, but to Christ himself. It is not that ethical and moral standards are irrelevant, far from it. But when one reflects upon these four pillars, one has to understand that they all point to union with Christ, because Christianity is about union with Christ, who makes us, as St. Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, partakers of the divine nature. And union with Christ is the only experience of the kingdom that we will find in this world. It is in worship of Christ that we experience not life in the ideal state, the march of God on earth, which is actually idolatry, but paradise itself. Christendom as a civilization points us in this direction. To the extent that the right is Christian in the historic sense, it will have to find joy in Christ, in union and communion with him and his saints, and it will have to find reasons for continuing civilization or reclaiming Christendom in the mandate given to man to subdue the earth. We can also find reasons for continuing civilization in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. In that parable, the master, before going on a trip, entrusts several of his servants with various sums of money. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 19 has the master instructing his servants, do business until I return. The King James Version renders it, occupy until I return. The Greek word, pragmatiwamai, 
belongs to a semantic domain associated with profit-oriented or utility-maximizing endeavors. In both passages, all but one of the servants engage in such enterprises until the master returns. The context of this parable in both Matthew and Luke is the return of Jesus to institute the kingdom. In Luke, he tells the parable because the disciples supposed that the kingdom was going to appear immediately. It is in response to this supposition that Jesus tells this parable, Do business, occupy, until I return. A specifically Christian rite can find reasons for building, rebuilding, continuing civilization in this parable. Because in this parable, in effect, Jesus tells his disciples to make improvements, as it were, to his property, long-term, to build a civilization. But I want to reiterate before closing that what is needed above all is for the Christian right to have the kingdom orientation of the civilization they should hope to reclaim. I'm not so certain we do. The focus of our doing business has been the application of so-called biblical principles, not on the experience of the kingdom to be found in union and communion with Christ. If we are not focused above all things upon our own experience of the kingdom in worship, then we have little to offer. The application of biblical principles is no substitute for the experience of union with Christ. It really doesn't take much in the way of personal faith or conviction to apply biblical principles. Logically, the topic of my next video should be the kingdom of heaven. To distinguish the kingdom from Christendom, to explain why Christendom is not the kingdom. But as I said a moment ago, I will actually be talking about devotion to prayer. Think of it as putting first things first. If, as I argued, and I'm hardly alone in this, Christendom is more correctly understood as a civilization with a supporting culture influenced by Christianity, orienting its members toward the kingdom of heaven, some attention must be given to the Christianity which influences that supporting culture. To be sure, this should mean giving attention to the creeds and confessions, but as important as those are, prayer is the chief duty of the Christian, and the reclamation of Christendom cannot be successful, or even attempted correctly, without prayer. And so, for the sake, as I said, of putting first things first, my next production will be on prayer. Peace be with you.